Well, I just can't tell you how much, uh, after a long and challenging week, uh, how good it is to be worshiping together in the presence of the Lord. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors. Um, and uh, I have to say, I, I've always really liked classic cars. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a friend who, uh, in his, one of his garages, had a 64 Corvair convertible that was uh, in desperate need of repair. Uh, he allowed me to tow it to my house, and I was able to repair it, uh, restore it, and uh, sell it. Made a cool 150 bucks. Uh, I used to have a 66 Oldsmobile Cutlass that I used as a daily driver, which I loved that car uh, until the brakes went out on me while I was driving. I no longer have a 66 Oldsmobile Cutlass that I used as a daily driver. Uh, how many of you have ever used the phrase, uh, where the rubber meets the road? So I was uh, thinking about that this week and uh, really wrestling, well, where, where, does, where does that come from? I, uh, What's the origin of it? And really, it's attributed to Firestone Tires uh, print ads in the 40s and the 50s. Uh, but it was right around that 60s uh, mark that it really took off. And it took off because of a, a TV advertisement from 1963. I watched it this week, and I loved it so much that I, j I just honestly, I just wanted to show it to you. So uh, check this advertisement out from 1963. Wherever wheels are turning, no matter what the load, the name that's known is Firestone. Where the rubber meets the road, if you're carrying steel so or drama. killing the soil, gonna visit grandma or looking for oil. For the youngest driver and the real old pro, for a jet to land or a lawn to mow, for moving mountains or for stocking geese, Following a golf ball or keeping the peace. Wherever we are. If I don't stop it now, you'll have that in your head all day long. I, I love the fact that they took a golf cart and then went right to like a missile carrier, like, like as if those things are equal. Uh, but it's, you know, it really is a fascinating idiom. It, it really. Um, comes down to the, the time that they were in. Uh, cars were getting bigger, 40s and 50s before that. Uh, cars weren't that powerful, they, they weren't that big, and um, cars were getting bigger, more powerful engines, more engineering, and still all of it came down to four points on the road. Didn't matter how big your engine was, how fast your brakes uh, worked, didn't matter how good the steering was, if you lost traction on those four points, you were in trouble. And so where the rubber meets the road became this identifying marker that we still use today that kind of says, hey, listen, we can have ideas. We can have things that we uh, want to get done. But what matters is where the rubber meets the road. You can open up to Luke chapter 10. Uh, we're going to uh, finish up our series in the parable with one of the most well-known and even perhaps most influential parables in all of Scripture. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 is where we're going to start. And Jesus encounters, in the lead up to this story, he encounters this brilliant expert in the law. The ESV calls him a lawyer, could be a scribe, somebody who uh, knows what he's supposed to know, and he can parse it out in a moment's notice. What Jesus will ask him next, though, will reveal whether or not he's got it where it counts. He's got the knowledge, but what happens when the rubber meets the road. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. 
We believe that it is the inspired revelation of the living God, and we can hold it in our hands, and we can read it, and the Spirit helps us understand it, convicts us to obey it. So Lord, I pray that as we study this, that we'll understand, that we'll be convicted, and that we'll be moved to follow the example that Jesus Christ lays out for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's really two parts of this passage. Uh, as we dive into it, you'll see that the first part is this conversation between Jesus and the lawyer. It's the setup to the story. And then the second part is this parable, this story that Jesus is going to tell that directly relates back to the expert in the law and the questions he was asking. And before we dive in, I, just, I think it's helpful to think about this through the lens of the heart of the lawyer. If we can understand the heart of the lawyer, then we'll fully understand and be able to apply what Jesus Christ is teaching us through the story. So if you're there, uh, put your eyes on it. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We already get immediate insight into the heart of the lawyer. He stood up to test Jesus. And you'll notice he refers to him as teacher. Someone who's good, understands a lot. But you're getting a perspective as to what the lawyer is saying. He knows uh, all this stuff. And he's going to say, hey, want to put Jesus to the test. Let's see if he knows how to answer this question. Because it was common for the lawyers, for the scribes, for the Pharisees to kind of come together and debate some things. Hey, when I read this, this is how I understand it. How do you understand it? And then they would wrestle back and forth. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that they were really looking for the right answer. They were just looking to be right. And so this lawyer sees Jesus and says, oh, this guy has got some reputation. He's pretty smart. He's a good teacher. Let's see what he has to say about this. Uh, my family does this over the dinner table sometimes when one of my boys will ask, hey, dad, is a hot dog a sandwich? And he asked because he knows, like, I have some pretty passionate opinions about this. I mean, obviously, a hot dog is a sandwich. I mean, it goes without saying. It's stuff in bread. Sandwich. But the boys will be like, no, 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 listen, Dad, if you go to a restaurant, it's on a separate category. There's sandwiches, and then there's other stuff. Hot dog's always there. It's one piece of bread. You can't just lay something on a piece of bread and call it a sandwich. Well, but you go to Subway, there's one piece of bread. They just like, see, I can go on all day. I'll save you from it. Because what ends up happening is my wife will roll her eyes and say, you guys done yet? <laughs> That's essentially what's happening here. Guy who thinks he's pretty smart, guy who's got all the answers, comes, sees Jesus and is like, I wonder how he's going to answer this one. Now, we have to say, what shall I do to inherit eternal life is a little bit better than is a hot dog a sandwich. So Jesus can, answers him. He says in verse 26, brilliant debating tactic. Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Verse 27, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The expert in the law, the lawyer, answers with incredible insight. 
He's pulling that love the Lord your God from Deuteronomy 6 over here, and he's pulling that love your neighbor as yourself from Leviticus 19, and he's putting them all together, and he's showing that he has tremendous insight. He's able to pull these two things from different passages and say, it all kind of boils down to this. It's incredible insight, and Jesus actually agrees. Verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Jesus acknowledges the expert's right knowledge. He's answered correctly. Do that and you'll live. Excellent. Agreement. End of story. But he. Uh oh. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? man. There is so much that we could stop and unpack in those five little words. And who is my neighbor? I'm I'm so thankful for the commentary from Luke, because as we're trying to understand the expert in the law, the lawyer's heart, Luke is kind of going, here it is. And he desiring to justify himself. We get to peer beyond his words and see into his soul rather than acknowledge his own failures to love God and to love others. He tries to justify himself. He tries to shrink the requirement. And who is my neighbor might as well be. So who do I not have to love? Because I think I'm doing pretty good over here. On Friday, as I was really wrestling through some of this, I took a walk in my neighborhood and I walked sort of a loop and I just asked the Lord, like, God, help me understand where is it that I have the, the same heart as the lawyer? It was pretty quick and it was pretty clear. It's when I say I want to love God. It's when I say I love God, but then I want to reduce my requirement of loving other people. When I say, God, I love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but... I've done quite a lot today. I've done a lot this week. I made a difference here, Lord. Certainly, you don't expect me to do this there, Lord. Not those people, that person, those places, those needs. Those aren't mine. Those are not my responsibilities. Somebody else will come along to do that. I'm not gifted in that way. Here it is. Love in action is where the rubber meets the road for the believer. It's where the lawyer fails, and it's where I fail more often than I care to admit. So Jesus is going to respond to this lawyer by telling a story. He's going to tell a story of love and action. And Jesus is going to go right after that self-justifying, responsibility-limiting heart. He's going to tell a story of love and action. And so I want to give, uh, as we unpack this, three realities of love in action. We start with the story. You go right here. Verse 30, Jesus replied, So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to him, came to that place, saw him and passed by on the other side. A uh, little context, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was uh, pretty common and was uh, essentially the connector between Jerusalem, which you can see the road right here, uh, a connector from Jerusalem, which would have been the religious center, to uh, Jer Jericho, which would have been like a civic center. So it's not uncommon for this road to be used, and you can see that there's all sorts of spaces for the people to hide, for robbers to hide. It was dangerous. It's also interesting that Jesus calls the priest and the Levite. The priests were uh, from the tribe of Levi, descendants of Aaron, and they were given specific responsibility to offer sacrifices for the people of Israel. So they were uh, essentially very special. The Levites were other people from the tribe of Levi who were just given other responsibilities around, around the temple. They, they would lead worship. They would sing psalms. They would uh, clean up the temple. I mean, essentially, when Jesus is pulling out, he's saying, imagine a preacher and a worship leader are on their way home from church. And they see a man in need. but they pass by on the other side. They perceive the need, but they avoid it. Jesus is very deliberate in telling us that both of them saw the need, but that they went out of their way not to meet it. This brings us to number one. Love in action sees the need and doesn't avoid it. Now, part of me hesitates to say anything good about the priest and the Levite. They're not in this story like held up as examples to be followed. But it's really clear that Jesus notes twice that they see the man in need. And that's our starting point. Before we can do anything, before we can put love into action, we have to see the need. In my house, uh, my wife and I have a running joke. Mostly that's to keep the tension from overspilling. Um, but that, that is when she asked me to go find something. I'll go and look, and then I'll be like, oh, it wasn't there. She'll go and look. What, what she, it's right there. In fact, uh, I love memes, and so I sent this uh, a while back. It just, it just makes me laugh because it's absolutely true. It is my household. Where's the ketchup? I don't see it. Or maybe for you, uh, if you've ever thought about buying a truck or a car, or like maybe it's a, just a red Ford F-150, and got this in your mind, I'm thinking about buying it, and then what happens next? You start seeing it everywhere. Why is that? It's because our attention, our perception of what we see, our focus is drawn to those things that interest us. The starting point for love in action is seeing the need. I was thinking about how to apply this to my own life, and I, I came to the conclusion that, to be honest, I don't see all that many people in need on my way home from church. It's unlikely that if I get in my car right now and I drive uh, west home, uh, that I'm going to see a half-dead guy on the side of the road. It's, not, it's just not likely going to happen. I live in a decent subdivision. My kids go to decent schools. We live in a decent suburb of a fairly decent city. 
where not much happens. So I want to bring out, I think, three ways that we fail to see or we avoid the needs that are present in our community. The first is this, that we avoid dangerous places. We don't see the needs because we don't go where the needs are. We stick to where it's safe. We stick to where it's comfortable. I built a house next to the temple in Jerusalem so that I never have to go anywhere. Safety and comfort are not supposed to be the highest priorities for the obedient follower of Christ. So we avoid seeing the need. We avoid meeting the need by not going to where the needs are. The second is this. We're so focused on our own plans and people and preferences. It may be that I wouldn't see a half dead man by the side of the road. But that's because in our community, the needs aren't by the side of the road. The needs are behind picket fences and two and a half car garages. And the reason I don't ever see the needs is because I don't engage with people. I don't invest in others. As I'm walking the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, I don't see anybody in need because my nose is in my phone and my plans and my priorities and I got to do this tomorrow and I got to do this next week and uh, I really like this and I just never ever raise my eyes up enough to see the need. And I think it's been a really difficult year for that. We spent two months locked away in our homes told not to engage with other people. Meanwhile, those other people are hurting. They're in pain. They have needs. I never saw it. And I'm thankful that we were able to do that. I'm thankful that we were able to be safe and healthy. But it has made love in action much harder. The third way we fail to see or we avoid is that we just miss out on needs that are spiritual in nature. Find out maybe that your neighbor's marriage is struggling. And you think, well, I, I don't know what to say to them. I don't, I don't know what to do about that. That's somebody else's job. That's somebody else's response. I hope, man, I really, really hope they get the help they need. I, I'm not gifted in that way. That's the pastor's job. That's the counselor's job. I, 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 just, I, I just can't. It's not, it's, I, I, what if I make it worse? There's, uh. So we miss out on these needs that are spiritual in nature. We avoid by just saying, I'm not gifted. Somebody else will do it. We have to do better. Jesus is calling us to something better, to see the need and to not avoid it. So when we see the need, what makes the difference between rushing into it and rushing away from it? Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Priest sees it, goes the other way. Levite walking, sees it, goes the other way. Samaritan walking, sees it. And what was different? Right there, do you see it? But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, what? He had compassion. 
Number two, love in action is motivated by a compassionate heart. When a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, he saw him and he had compassion. Now, honestly, this is scandalous. The priest, the one who was supposed to offer the sacrifice, is the most special of all the Levites. And the Levite, the most special spiritual amongst the Israelites, saw it and did nothing. But a Samaritan? This is the enemy of the Jews. This is the person who's not supposed to do anything right ever. They hated him. He's like a Patriots fan. He's the worst. Samaritan was the one that did it because of compassion. Compassion is the tipping point to action. I remember when I was in fifth or sixth grade, uh, we were doing the science experiment. Maybe you guys had this experience uh, where they get the big bowl of water, right? You fill it up all the way to the top, and then you drop in paper clips one at a time. You drop them in one at a time because you want to see the little bubble form on the top of the water. You want to see how many paper clips you can get in before that surface tension is broken and the water all spills out. And the idea is that you can put all these paper, it's amazing how many paper clips you can put in there, but one, one will make the difference. Now, I remember this because when I dropped mine in, I was like, yes. And I jumped, and it broke, and I'm still dealing with it. But the idea is that there is one paper clip that made all the difference. It's the same way with compassion. You see it, and you avoid it, where you see it and you have compassion. It's the one ingredient that makes the difference. It's yeast to bread, gas to your lawnmower, Mentos to your Diet Coke. It's the one ingredient that when you add it makes all the difference. The difference between doing the right thing and doing nothing is a heart motivated by compassion. Now, I bet the priest and the Levite had some pretty good excuses for going to the other side. Maybe they were concerned with, uh, you know, I, listen, I just finished all my duties at the temple. I've already served God for today. Maybe they were worried about the law and their uncleanness. And well, that guy looks half dead. Maybe he's all the way dead. If I get there and I touch him, I'm going to be unclean. And that's just going to mess up my month. Or maybe they were concerned about their own safety. The robbers could still be hiding. Perhaps all those things went through the mind of the Samaritan too. But his heart would not let him look away. Compassion is the tipping point to action. And I think it's helpful for us to heed, uh, recognize probably a very specific warning that we have in our community because we tend to look alike. And that is that we are more likely to look away from those who aren't like us. There's a um, principle in sociology, it's called empathy bias. And a study in MIT uh, said this about empathy uh, and compassion between in-group, which would be people that are similar, that are socially connected, and out-group, which would be people that are dissimilar and not socially connected. And the difference of empathy and compassion between in-group and out-group social environments. They said this, 
People recognize emotional experiences in others and experienced matched sensations and emotions. Experienced matched sensations and emotions. That is empathy. I feel what other people feel. And are motivated to alleviate those others' suffering. That's compassion. I'm motivated to alleviate their suffering, frequently resulting in helping behaviors. That's good. Often, though, we are likely to feel no pain, no sadness, and no motivation to help. Failures of empathy are especially likely if a sufferer is socially distant. For example, a member of a different social or cultural group. We often fail to detect such out-group members' emotional experiences. We don't see it. We don't understand it. Or perceive them in substantially disordered ways. They experience it one way, but I can't process that. And we are only weakly, if at all, motivated to reduce their suffering. In fact, depending on the victim, we may feel secretly pleased about his or her misfortunes. So imagine for a minute that uh, the Colts and the Patriots are playing downtown Lucas Oil Stadium. They're playing in the AFC Championship game. Tight game, man, tensions running high. The Patriots win again. We're walking down the street afterwards, guy in Patriots gear, all decked out, stumbles on the curb, falls. What's my response? (laughs) Serves him right. Now imagine that there's a Colts fan in front of me, and he he stumbles, and he falls down. What's my response? Oh, man, come on, let me help. Now that's a silly example of a very ungodly attitude. The reality is that we do that based on color of skin, based on political, based on beliefs, based on all sorts. Oh, I think he deserved it. All sorts of different stuff. And it's appropriate for the believer to recognize that sin in our flesh, which sociology rightly calls out but has no idea how to solve. But that is possible in us. And to move through it, recognizing that every single person is made in the image of God. Compassionate heart is the antidote to selfish living. And the result is a loving mercy in action that is pleasing to God. So, next question becomes, how do we create in ourselves a heart of compassion? Or is it? The reality is that we can't. We want there to be some like, uh, just follow these five steps to more compassionate heart. We want to be, oh, just tell me what to do and, and I'll go and have a new heart. The reality is there's, we, I can't do nothing to create in myself a new heart. That work is God's and God's alone. But there is a way that I partner with that. And that's by confessing it as sin. I have to recognize that my lack of compassion, when I see a need and I am not moved to do anything about it, that apathy and lack of compassion is sin. And the only way that I'll have a new heart of compassion created in me is confession and repentance. 
Lord, that is sin and I hate it. I turn from it. Create in me, Holy Spirit, a new heart, a compassionate heart, a loving heart that sees others in suffering and is motivated to move towards them. So instead of asking yourself, how can I create in myself a heart of compassion, ask this, where do I need to confess the sin of apathy and lack of compassion? If we allow God to build in us hearts of compassion, then what follows will naturally flow out of that heart. Jesus is going to illustrate this massive difference between a heart with compassion and a heart without. Verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. That's physical touch. Pouring on oil and wine, that's personal expense. Then he set him on his own animal. That's, that means he's going to have to walk. It's personal sacrifice. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days wages, a financial cost. Which, you know, you might think two days wages, not that much. I guarantee you, if your paycheck was two days late, you'd be on the phone with HR pretty quick. And he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. He's extending the commitment. Number three, love in action sacrifices deeply. It's really remarkable. When I read this, I think, okay, uh, compassion. He went and bound, him, uh, bound up his wounds. Excellent. Job well done. That's enough of a difference between the Samaritan and the priest and the Levite. The priest and the Levite who didn't do anything and the Samaritan who did something. Good job, man. But Jesus just keeps going. And I think that's the point. See, the lawyer was trying to limit his responsibility. Okay, who's my neighbor? Who, who can I choose not to love? Who can I do the least for? And instead, Jesus shows a man who deliberately and intentionally puts absolutely no limits on his love, including whatever I need to pay when I come back. When the lawyer wants to know what's the least I can do, the Samaritan rolls up in his sleeves and says, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. He doesn't stop to ponder or plan. He just goes and does. Motivated by a heart of compassion, he rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. Any of you ever play football? Football was not a sport I played. Uh, one hit and I'm out for the season. But I, I love watching football. I, love, I watch it on, well, I used to watch it on Saturdays. Hopefully I'll get to watch it on Sundays. I know some of our, in our, in our church, uh, talented football players that play at high school on Friday nights. One of the things I love about uh, football is you can see that there's this break in the action between the plays where, you know, the play gets called in, the players gather and they huddle, they're working it out, and then they go and they execute the plan. If it's a good play and if it's well executed, you get a good result. If it's a bad play or it's poorly executed, eh, it's probably not going to be such a good result. But you know what they don't do? Stay in the huddle. Can you imagine that the play gets called in 
And they're like, all right, guys, what are we going to do? I would like to play wide receiver this time. Dude, you're the center. This has already been worked out. Well, you know, I just think, what if we did this and what if we did that? When it's time to get to work, they break the huddle. I think the church struggles with this. Oh, look, there's a man in need. Oh, he's got some wounds. Maybe I need some bandages. Uh, wine and oil. Uh, who's got that? Uh, uh, you know, I, wow, you can borrow my donkey. Um, what about, okay, let's see. Uh, anybody, any lawyers or any uh, doctors, anybody know like, how to deal with this? Like, and we just talk about it and talk about it and talk about it. And we never break the huddle. And if we're just talking about it, the need continues to go unmet. One of the things I love about this is that he doesn't delay. He gets to work. Love in action is where the rubber meets the road. And as believers, we have to stop talking about it and start doing something. We have to do something to love a hurting world. If we don't, we don't take the opportunities in front of us, then we are the priest and the Levite. Jesus continued, verse 36, which of these three then do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I, lo I love this so much. The lawyer says, okay, so who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, okay, who was a neighbor to the guy? You see, he's flipping it all the way around. He's saying, instead of limiting this to what groups of people or where, uh, how can I make sure? He's saying, who can you be a neighbor to? Who can I love? Who can I serve? Who can I sacrifice for? Who can I show mercy to? Who has Jesus Christ placed right in front of me? And what can I do? Motivated by a heart of compassion. And the example for all of this is Jesus Christ. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers, leaving him half dead. Just like we were spiritually dead in our sins. Unable to do anything about it. Without help, we're done for. But Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth with a heart filled with love while we were bleeding out, Jesus Christ bled for us. It's because of Jesus Christ's compassion, because of his love in action, that we are healed. Without that, we're dead. Jesus Christ set this example. So I want to challenge you this week, as you are going, 
Ask the Lord to reveal to you the areas of your life that maybe you haven't been so compassionate. The people in your life that maybe you haven't been so compassionate towards. And when he does, confess it immediately. And then look for ways to go and serve and meet their needs. Because Jesus loved us, we should go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, just collectively we confess that we are selfish. That we love our safety and our comfort. We love to love the people that we like and not so much the people that we don't. that is sin. Don't let it continue in us. Lord, create in us this new heart of compassion that comes only from the work that you have done. Lord, and empowered by your spirit, help us to go and do something to meet the needs of a hurting world. A world desperately in need of your healing whatever way they need it. Lord, let us not put limits on your love towards them. It's because of your work that we get to say we are children of God. Lord, it's in your glorious and 